Let's see what the stew has for us today. Welcome to the Gnomecast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by our awesome Patreon backers like the stupendous Stephen Farrell, the judicious Jeremy French, and the daring Daniel Markwig. Today, we have the audio from a gnome-packed panel that was held at Breakout Con 2019 this past March in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The panel was moderated by Senda, and the panelists were myself, Ange, Camden, and the gnome-adjacent Chris Spivey of Darker Hue Studios. Our topic was how to run a good con game, so let's dive right in. Hi, I'm going to moderate this panel, so I'm going to do my best not to talk a lot, which is challenge for me, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to pull it off. I'm Senda Leno. I do a podcast called Pandas Talking Games about running one-shots and campaigns, which means I run a lot of one-shots in my life, which is why I think I am moderating this panel. Um, <laughs> we're jokingly calling this panel Spivey and the Gnomes, because most of us write for Gnomes too on a consistent basis. And I'm going to pass it on down because i got awesome panel people with me sitting here. First off, Ange. Hi, I'm Angela Murray. I'm one of the gnomes, uh, right for Gnome Stew. I do Gnome Stew's podcast, The Gnome Cast. And yeah, I've been playing games for three years and, you know, running games for about 15. So, cool. And Chris? Uh, I'm Chris Bivey. I'm the creator of Harlem Unbound. I'm also gnome adjacent as I've written an article for Gnome Stew. <laughs> I've also worked on Cthulhu Confidential and for a couple other companies. I'm just excited to be with these talented people. Cool. Uh, I'm Camden Wright. I'm a game writer and designer uh, working on a game called One Child's Heart about sad children. Um, I also write for Gnome Stew. Um, I don't like to brag, but I'm friends with Chris Bivey. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So... We have some questions just down in our notes, and I think what we're going to do um, is just kind of run through them and get, you know, feels from everybody up here. And either they're going to be really entertaining, and we're going to end up talking about them a ton, and I'm going to cut them off and then give you guys some time to ask questions, or we will fly through them all because they're not actually entertaining, and then we'll have lots of time for questions, and I'm honestly not sure which it's going to be. So we'll just jump right in and see what happens. <laughs> Um, so the, the, the first thing that I actually had written down, and this is just, um, since we're talking about con games specifically, which is a very specific variety of like one shot, right? Of short game. Um, just as a, a general, totally general thing, um, I want to go down the line and hear everybody's favorite, like top one-off tip. When somebody says, I'm running my first con game, what do you tell them? What is your top tip? Yeah, I've got an easy answer for this. Um, respect everyone's time. Uh, start on time, end on time, uh, make sure that you leave yourself enough time inside of what you're doing to tell a complete story, uh, because people have places to go, people need the table after you, and it's really an unsatisfying feeling in those moments where you have to say, hey, I know we're not done, but see you later, everybody. Um, so, timing. Uh, just to piggyback on to Camden's, a similar thing, if you see that your time's running out, actually, my top tip is be flexible. Adjust the entire scenario to make sure it has a satisfying ending for everyone. My top tip is the game needs to be about the characters. Period. It doesn't matter how cool your scenario is. If the game isn't about the characters at the table, you've got a problem. You know, So make sure that you understand what you need to bring to the table for the characters the players are going to be playing. Whether it's a game where they're creating characters at the table, you got to understand how much time you need to allot for that. Or if you're giving them pregens, make sure all of those pregens have something to do in the scenario you're putting at the table. Yeah. Good tips. Cool. We're passing notes. We're passing notes. GM tip number one, never pass notes. Okay, cool. <laughs> Disagree. GM tip number one, always pass notes. Fine. <laughs> this is why I'm friends with Chris, because he teaches me things like this. <laughs> We're having a teachable moment right now. Here. That's right. As I spill my coffee. Don't spill your coffee. I believe in you. Hey, I didn't spill. Um, okay, cool. Um, awesome. So, my gimme for the day. <laughs> uh, so the next thing that I have down is actually just talking about what kind of mechanics you tend to favor. Like, there's obviously games that we love better for running campaigns, and there are games that we like better for running one-shot kind of stuff, but what kind of mechanics do you usually look for in something that you are planning to run at a convention specifically? For me specifically, 
honestly, I run everything from PBTA to 5E to whatever captures my attention. Like just a month ago, I ran Tales from the Loop and Dragon Age. Um, and you know, they're, they're very differing levels of mechanics. So for me, it's a matter of, am I comfortable enough with these mechanics that I can shove them out of the way when I need to? Because that is one of the things when you're running a one-shot is, like you said, be flexible. You got to know when the mechanics are important and when you need to get them out of the way so you can keep everything moving forward. Yeah, that's interesting because why doesn't follow up on that question, does it? I have a follow-up, but I want to hear from these gentlemen <laughs> okay. first. <laughs> uh, regardless of if it's a one-shot at a con or at home, I like crunchy rules. Because a lot of the crunchy rules, you can sort of explain while you're playing, and you put people in small situations where they learn the rules as they play. And it builds a sense of confidence in them as they're playing the game, and that gets more player buy-in. Once they know the rules, they'll pay more attention to what's going on, and they're learning that through the course of the scenario. I guess to kind of piggyback on what you both said, things that are really clear and explicable that you can you don't want to spend, if you've got a four-hour slot, you don't want to spend two and a half hours of it uh, going over the minutia of what's happening. You want something that is clean enough that you can explain in play with just a little bit of setup of, you know, these are the dice you're going to be using. Tell me what you want to do, and I'll, I'll help you facilitate what you need to roll. So that, this is actually really interesting answers for me because uh, my preference is always to run like light stuff mm -hmm. at cons because I can usually explain all of the rules um, mm -hmm. very quickly. So I don't actually have a lot of experience running really complicated things at the table that people don't already know, right? Like you sit down at a table and somebody probably already gets the basics of like a D&D, &D, right? Mm -hmm. So when you're not doing that, how do you decide what rules you're going to be teaching or like how to approach that stuff when you're educating the players at your table. I try and make sure they get the, the basic concepts. What, what is the basic mechanic of the game? When you pick up the dice or do whatever the random element is to make that game keep going forward, I make sure everyone understands what that is. You know, like, like Tales from the Loop. When you're going to do a thing, you are going to make a pool of dice and roll it and you want a six. Get that mechanic out there. Get people to understand it. But beyond that, it's like, don't worry too much about all the, the detailed mechanics. You know, I give them like the, the, you know, what they need to know at that moment moving forward without getting too deep into it because we'll explain it if it comes up. For me, it's really similar, except I usually give maybe a one or two minute overview of the mechanics. I go, hey, we use percentiles for colorful. We use percentiles. There's a couple different tiers of difficulty. These are some key terms you might hear me throw out. And then we'll start. And then for the first roll, I'll slow the pace of the scenario down a little bit. And I might have, for instance, make a spot hidden roll. And someone says, so what's spot hidden? And I go, does this go here? This is your percentage. And you're trying to roll under that. Mm -hmm. And then everyone sees that. And then we can move on. And they have a rough idea of how skills work. And we keep building on that. If, if, I, if I may interject, one of the things that I like to do with a one-shot is you give that, that quick overview of what the mechanics are. And then you make sure there is a moment very early in the session where you can demonstrate how the dice rolls work. You don't necessarily need it to be a full combat scene, but you need there to be something where, okay, you're doing this, let's roll the dice, and this is how this happens, this is how this works. So, I, I mean, to me, part of it is, if you're, especially when you're making a decision about what to cut out, um, you want to sure, make sure that the game feels, still feels mechanically and narratively as designed. So it doesn't matter whether you're running, you know, Good Society or you're running Harlem Unbound or you're running Savage Worlds. There's a specific design choice that was made. Um, so like, don't pit. I mean, if you're going to, if you're running a Cthulhu game, you don't want to remove the sanity mechanic because that is like <laughs> uh, integral to what's going on. And if you do, you're, you're giving people a, a dishonest experience mm -hmm. of, of what they've signed up for. If you're running a Savage Worlds game, the idea is it's exploding dice and it's fun and it's fast. And D&D um, &D is very much, you know, you're in that I have a thing that I do really well. And I want to feel really powerful and really good at that thing. So make sure that whatever you leave behind really focuses on that. And so you can tell the type of stories you want to. So tell me, do you have a favorite kind of story that you like to tell for con games? <laughs> You're looking. That is no fair. You know the answer to that question. Um, yeah, I do. Um, so... I like to tell stories. Um, noir is kind of a favorite of mine, no matter what I'm doing. And I like the idea that you've got good 
ish people <laughs> potentially in a situation that is outside of their control trying to do the best that they can and the humanity of those stories and the honest emotions involved in it whether it is a superhero game or a horror game or a straight you know pr- police procedural those are the stories that i like to delve into I really like uh, investigative games with a little bit of a hard hinge to it, regardless of if it's superheroes, noir, whatever it is. It's that experience with the players going through and finding clues and piecing it all together to try to solve the mystery at the end. So I I kind of joke that I run games that are like the MCU movies. Um, You know, there's some emotional honesty in there. There is a lot of action and adventure in there. There's some humor in there. But the important thing for me is the characters and the emotional honesty of what's going on in the game. So I don't necessarily go as deep as, you know, you may go in some of your games, but I, you know, it's, this is not over the top humor. This is not, you know, this is not slapstick humor, but I want, I want that in the game. I want there to be that, you know, yeah, we're doing the thing with the emotional honesty, the adventure and the involved, the emotional involvement of the char- the players through their characters. If I could tag onto that. Yeah. And one of the things for my games I always do is for all the pre-gens, there's usually maybe a two to 300 word little bio for the character with a relationship line or two about how mm-hmm. they feel about the characters. Gotcha. Not enough to like dictate what they do, but sort yeah. of hint yeah. at how this character would feel. Um, well, let's jump in on that actually a little bit more. So like other than writing it in, do you have any other specific things you do at the table to make sure that people are building relationships between their characters? A lot of it for investigative games is people usually have to break off into pairs because you won't have all the skills that you need, especially in Cthulhu, because you're always going to be a team. You're not like D&D or this is my specialty. I'm amazing at all things. You pointed me when you said D&D. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, continue. I'm I didn't mean to throw you off. Can't even play D&D. <laughs> I know. And that Keep was a going. fun part of seeing what he was going to do. <laughs> I did it. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that, that sort of builds up relationships and also have the people in the world interact with the character based on their background. For instance, in the game I ran yesterday, one of them was a uh, sort of a mafia enforcer. And everywhere that person went, people responded to him differently. Some people might sort of move away or some people might say, I've already paid your boss, leave me alone and things like that. And the other characters see how everyone is responding to that person. And then they sort of follow suit and build their own relationships. Right. Cool. Yeah. Do you have? Uh, I mean, I think that uh, along that same vein, giving people a reason to care about the world that they inhabit mm-hmm. is really important too. Um, you know, if especially if you're in an investigative game where there's something at stake, why do they want to stick around? Why is it important for them to solve this problem? Um, give them, you know, some some skin in the game of, of what's going on in the greater world around them and that impact. I do two different types of games at cons. I do the PBTA games where you're building the character at the table and establishing the connections right at the table. And I always make sure that I have no plan when I run a PBTA game at at a con. The adventure comes out of what the players give me when they make their characters. So immediately, like, whatever is happening is related to their characters. So that immediately invests them in. If I am running a game where I have created pregens, those pregens will have, like, like you say, they'll have like a little line or at least a note about what they know about the other players. I'll make sure they all understand as the game starts why their characters interact together and go from there. I'll also do things like remind them when they come across something in the game or the world that is, you know, could be relevant to your character. Hey, that guy, Lenny the Town Stoner, you know him. You know, it's like that's the type of thing I'll I'll do. Right, so I think just based on the answers, we would as a group say that relationships between players are one way that we can invest, or relationships between characters are one way we can invest players. There we go. I got it. In the game that we're running, right? Do you have other favorite ways to make sure that people get invested in the time that you have in a one-shot? Anybody can start. You're all looking at me. <laughs> looking at you for moderation. <laughs> I'm moderating. I'm asking the questions. Um, you know, I make sh- like I think it is absolutely crucial as a GM, regardless of whether you're running a one shot or a campaign, of making sure that spotlight is moving around the table. And you will have players that very easily pick up their character and dive into that story. And it can be very easy to unwittingly let them dominate the game. And players who aren't as 
proactive, aren't as, you know, they're a little shyer, may end up falling into the shadows and you need to remember to pull them back and that can help keep them engaged. And it's things like, um, like in the previous panel where you said, you know, like pull in different characters to a scene. Like if one player is like, I'm doing this, it's like pull that player that's being quiet, like find a way to justify their character being involved in that scene too and keep, keep everyone involved. You got to keep all those balls juggling in the air. Uh, one of my tools to help do that is I like to sometimes go in blocks of time, give someone two or three blocks, and you move around so everyone is actively doing something. Mm -hmm. And even if they're not doing something, they're saying, all right, so that person's doing X. I can try to do Y, and they're still working together as a team. And there's also some over-the-table crosstalk, which is kind of encouraged for the out-of-character stuff, and it helps them build and move the plot along. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, I agree. And in that... Uh I think in that same vein, there's a lot of times where you can, without shutting somebody down who is an enthusiastic player, you can say, hey, you know what? Hang on to that. We're going to come back to you in just a second. And, you know, there's somebody here that speaks Russian. You're the only character that speaks Russian, aren't you? And so, you know, have those moments. Keep that flexibility and make sure that you're including, you're giving space for everyone to have agency and help tell that same story. Yeah. So uh, do you guys have anything else? that you want to add kind of along the, the actual storylines here. I'm going to move us in a slightly different direction, but I want to give you like a moment to fill in anything we might have missed. Don't, when you start your game, don't give your players an out. I ran a game once where I was throwing the hook at a particular player and this, this a particular character and this character, as they were on the page, would have reached out to all the other characters to bring them in and go investigate this thing. The player that ended up with this character decided to call some random NPC <laughs> and refused to contact the rest of the PCs. I finally had to be like, how am I going to get... Oh, the psychic. The psychic has a vision. You know you need to call everybody and go to Alcatraz. Um, and like that's how I finally got the adventure. And I've, I've learned to be very careful about constructing my, you know, whatever I'm throwing at the players, don't give them a chance to go this way when the plot is over here. It's like, you want to keep your plot flexible, but you still don't want them to completely avoid it. Get to the monkey. Get yeah. to the yeah. monkey. Start them when it's too late for them to back out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think it's more important to have a middle and an end to your story <laughs> than it is to focus too much on the beginning, uh, in a convention game in particular. Get to, you know, Indiana Jones, you know, we start, we're in the middle of the temple, things are going sideways, what are we going to do? Um, it's not like, hey, so I was interested in hiring you to <laughs> take me to this place. And I mean, and, and there is, if you're in a uh, in a home game, there's a lot of interesting stories to tell in there. Uh, when you're at a convention, it's business time. <laughs> so if, if the, I can, I'm, I'm sorry, if I can interject, one thing that is important at the very beginning, make sure you have a moment where everyone knows who else is involved. Um, yeah. I've played so many con games where GMs are so focused on getting, getting to the monkey yeah. and getting, you know, like, I don't know who this person is or why they're in our group, <laughs> you know, and like, you got to make sure that everyone knows who everyone else is at the table, especially if you're starting kind of in media res or, you know, so and you can so have on. that moment to introduce characters. Right. And that's yeah. wholly appropriate. So I have just a, a couple more things on my list and then we will open it up for questions. So the first one is the always con game question, which is how do you keep your game running on time? <laughs> I've got strong opinions about that. Yeah, but, would you like to go first? <laughs> uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, timing, timing, timing. Um, so I usually wear a watch, one, because I'm old, and two, because <laughs> um, it's a lot easier than uh, constantly looking at a phone uh, because that can send mixed messages. But if that's what you do, that's what you do. And uh, you need to be flexible. So you need to be adjusting that story um, so that it is the plot is moving forward. There are times when, even with your best intentions, things will slow to a grinding halt. And you need to then have a, have a conversation with people and say, hey, 
you know, we're coming down to it. We're in the last hour. Um, you guys have accomplished all of this and I need you to make a decision. Just, we need to go in a direction. What direction you go in is entirely up to you. Let's just pick something and kind of move in that way and still give them agency. I have to tell a Camden story really quickly here because the first game <laughs> that I ever played with Camden was at a convention and it was a one shot and he's up here talking about being flexible, but he has done this to me where he literally took a kitchen timer and he put it on the table <laughs> Because that's when the bomb was going to go off and kill everyone. And you know what time that set timer was set for? Ten minutes before the end of the game was, you know, the game slot. So, like, I feel like there are also creative ways to force there your are. players and into And I'll tell you, everybody, everybody jokes around until there's 20 minutes on that <laughs> oh timer. God. And then all of a sudden, I'm everyone is out. deadly serious. <laughs> freaking out. Somebody was thinking too hard about his move, and I was like... Anyway, so I just had to bring that up because running on time, that's a thing that I think of. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You can be emotionally manipulative, too. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's fine. That's, that's, that's also you to decide on, the table. on your own. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't hesitate to, like, you know, if you have, if you have running a more traditional game and you have planned, you know, these many encounters, don't hesitate to take those encounters and throw them out. <laughs> you know, it's like you need, like you said, you need that middle, you need that ending, and you have to keep an eye on the time. Um, especially at a con, you need to respect everyone else's time. And, you know, nothing bugs me more than a GM that assumes it won't be too bad if we go five minutes over. No, no, I have places to be, people to see, you know, end 10, 15 minutes before the end of the session so people can get to what they're doing next. And that means keeping an eye on the time. And there have been times where I have, because the players have dragged their feet on other things and I can't get them moving, um, or I have basically, we've just narrated the ending. You know, you guys got to where the big bad fight is supposed to happen, but we have 15 minutes left, so tell me what you do to defeat the leprechaun that stole the artifact. You know, it's like, you know, tell me what you do, and then we just narrate the ending and move on. That, um, that is my worst case scenario ending all the time, is like, if nothing else, we'll just talk through yeah. this, so we at least... Mm -hmm. Finish the story. Yeah. Chris, do you have anything? I like to give a five-minute break right in the middle. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that puts everyone on board. It gives them a chance to get anything they need. But when they come back, they know that we're in the last half of the game. And that usually changes the entire dynamic of the game. For the first couple of hours, I am pretty lackadaisical. I'll let you wander around, follow false clues. But when we come back, it's going to have a notable shift. And I'll give like a two or three-minute recap, usually like, these are the clues you've discovered. This is what you've sort of already pieced together. And then I'll let them go for it. And might give a reminder about 45 minutes for the end of the game. I was running a Dresden Accelerated game. And it was an investigative game where they were basically finding out what happened during a heist. This is when the leprechaun stole the artifact. Um, <laughs> well, there was a real actual leprechaun. Yeah, there was an actual real leprechaun that stole the artifact. <laughs> they spent the first two hours of the session investigating the vault where the heist took place. And I'm like, I couldn't get them to leave the vault. So I'm like, okay, let's take a break. Come back. And I'm like, okay, where do you guys go next? They still wanted to keep investigating the vault. <laughs> and it was just like, go someplace else. The adventure is not here. Go. <laughs> go, little players. Release into the world. And, and I think that sometimes, despite your best intentions and using all your tools, mm -hmm. sometimes it's going to run a little long. And that's, uh, you, I mean, and you apologize. You do your best. Um, understand that some people may need to walk right. away from the table and that's not ideal either but it's better that they not sit there and suffer you know mm -hmm. during that time so there's um we've talked about a couple of specific things you can do and one of those is like having basically modular encounter kind of stuff that you can just toss like oh don't have time for that like get rid of these two jump to the end and we also talked about like the the worst case scenario ending which is andrew saying and yeah. i do that i'm sure we all pretty much do this like worst case scenario ending like i have five minutes left we're gonna narrate <laughs> how this all ends, right? <laughs> is there anything else that you specifically use as tools when you know you're ticking down on time to try to get things back on track? It depends on what the specific scenario is. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. if they have already have contacts out in the world, a contact might call them with a clue they've discovered right. that'll mm -hmm. help like circumnavigate part of the plot and move right. them on. Or I might let them have an, one of their own idea roles to say, I just realized that this equals this. Right, yeah. So you can feed them basically a little bit more information it to get them ahead. helps them keep their own agency of being the people that discovered whatever that was. Right. Mm -hmm. I will sometimes ham-fistedly shove the climax in their faces. You know, <laughs> I will basically take whatever. It's like, okay, you guys are dragging your feet, getting over here, doing this. Okay, we're going to move the 
I actually did this once. Did, did, did you put it back in the ar- you Did you take the big bat and put it in the archive with the leprechaun? Or <laughs> No, no, this was a different game. I had The players were having trouble leaving this little town. They were supposed to investigate a, a caravan that had gone missing, and they wouldn't go on the same route as the caravan, so I took the encounter they were supposed to have and moved it to the town next door, and they got over there and did the, all the things, because I'm like, okay, we're going to take this and shove it over here. And at the end of that, one of the players got, that was good, but it was too much of a railroad. I'm just like, <laughs> you wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs> you wouldn't follow the tracks. <laughs> yeah, do you, uh, Camden, anything to add to that in terms of, like, specific? Uh, I mean, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm really on the same page. I'm a big fan of, uh, of those roles to say, you know what? Hey, give me an intelligence role. Give me whatever the appropriate skill is. And like, hey, you know what? You know, you've been doing all this stuff. And there's that moment where you're like, oh, man, it was the, it was the butler in the bank the entire time. <laughs> and when in doubt, you always fall back to an horror trope if you can't figure anything out. Have someone with a gun show up. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I we've been talking kind of about players dragging their feet. It's also important to understand that you as a GM don't, like, be flexible. Don't be tied to the things you've written down. If the, you decided that a clue is hidden in the vent in the ladies' room and they are not checking the, the vent in the ladies' room, move that clue to another place they are checking so that they can find it and the game can move forward. Don't be so tied to your scenario that the game bogs down because the players just aren't thinking on the same place you were. And there should always be multiple ways to discover clues. Yes. That's, whenever you're like charting out your scenario that you're writing, there should be multiple avenues to hit core clues. Everything else could be sort of alternate clues that you may or may not discover that aren't important, but they might give you some sort of benefit. Yeah. I like, I use mind maps to, to do those kind okay. of things, and all roads lead to Rome eventually, but there's multiple ways to get there. And don't let your players get too bogged down in red herrings. Yeah. Too many red herrings in a one-shot means... Yeah, that's bad. You might not have time to do the actual not red herring. Um, Cool. So uh, I feel like another part of being on time and of respecting everyone's time is the stuff that we do before we ever get to the convention, before we ever get to the table. So like, what are some of the things that you do just logistically to prepare for running a con game at the table? that are not necessarily mechanics, story, etc. Uh, I listen to my pregame mix that's usually a mix of like <laughs> yeah. musicals and other stuff to put me in the zone, and then I just show up and run. <laughs> Make works. sure you've got your materials ready. Make sure your character sheets are printed. Make sure you have your notes in whatever form you need them in. And I personally like cheat sheets. I, you know, I like my cheat sheet that gives me the rules on one sheet so I'm not, like, grabbing the book and flipping through it to try and figure out how to handle a thing. I can just glance at the cheat sheet and be like, oh, yeah, that's how I do this. Or a cheat sheet for the players that gives them the the quick rundown on the important things that they need to know. I Make sure you've got your materials. You don't need, like, not everyone runs the same way. Not everyone needs to have all the same accoutrement, but... Make sure that whatever you need to run that game for those players, you have ready to go at the game, you know, when that game starts. There's nothing worse than a G, you know, sitting down to a game and the GM's like, oh, hang on, I forgot the character sheets up in the room. And they have to run off and get the character sheet. So your game is stalled for like 15 minutes as you wait for them to get back. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I prepare everything ahead and then I chill out and show up. It's game time. So, combination of hybrid yeah. of these two, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, are there, along those lines, we're talking about sheet sheets, obviously you might need character sheets or your pre-gens, right? Is there anything else that you like to specifically have at the table for a con game that you might not use at home or that you do use at home, right, but that is really important for a con game? I make sure that I have, even even though I expect the players to have their own writing utensils and dice, (laughs) I still make sure I (laughs) I still have enough that I can share with the players as need be. Because you will always have somebody who's running late, just got to the con, and be like, I don't have any of my dice, they're in the car, I can, no, no, sit, sit, here's some dice, play. So make sure you have everything that's needed to play the game, even if it's you have to share with the players. So this is a little uh, less tangible, but have the confidence to make the call. Um, So when something happens, just make the call, trust in yourself. 
say it with authority and uh, make sure that it's not a confrontational or combative relationship that you're doing. But if somebody says, hey, well, we, we don't know what to do right here. It's not on your cheat sheet or whatever. Just make the call that's best for the story and best for the people at the table. On a, I guess on a less mechanical level like you all, I bring usually some sort of music because I like to sort of help establish the tone of the game and brings people into it more and potentially have like a slide deck to show them or something sort of like tangible they can hold because it brings them players more into the game and that helps you craft the story. And depending on the size of the room, that helps determine the level of intensity you might want your game to have. For instance, yesterday was a louder room, so running Harlem Unbound, I have different tiers in the game, I run it like the highest tier because I couldn't get to the level I needed to to move to the lower tiers to bring people into that world. Yeah. To add to what you just said, I actually like to have physical tokens of some kind, regardless of what system I'm running, because it gets people something to futz with on the table. And oftentimes that'll keep people a lot more engaged, keep them off yeah. their phones and things like that. You sneaky bugger. <laughs> did, I, did you just discover one of my secrets? Things. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> He's been manipulating me all along. Um, so I... We didn't have any other questions actually planned. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I want to do at this point is just open it up. If you guys have any questions from the audience, we have lots of time. <laughs> I think this gentleman, I saw you raise your hand first, and then we'll come over here. So I have a question about uh, being transparent or non-transparent about pacing decisions that you're making on the fly. That's so I'm interested in, uh, I've been in a position where you're thinking a mile a minute about how am I going to make this work or not work. And... When you make that choice, how do you feel about saying, you know what, we're going to cut this or compress this for time, or do you try and keep that behind the curtain? Does it matter? Is that just a personal preference? I'm curious your thoughts on I tend to take it on a case-by-case basis. It really depends on, you know, how crunched is time. I, I tend to be pretty transparent with my players, you know, as I feel that me talking about how the soup is made will also help future GMs understand that I am not some, you know, perfect monolithic thing that understands everything, how it's ha- how it happens. It's like, no, no, no. I'm just as clueless as you are. I want to see what happens here. But it, it really depends on the situation, but I don't have any hesitation of saying, yeah, let's, you know, let's cut this particular scene short. Let's, let's, you know, like you're halfway through a combat, you know, the PCs are going to win. Go ahead and end the combat. Ask how, you know, like, you know, the next player, how is he taken down? How is this bad guy taken down? How's the monster, you know, finished off? And then move on to the next important stuff. You don't want to get bogged down in the details, whether it's, you know, a combat or an investigation or whatever. So I'm pretty transparent with being like, yeah, we need to move on. So let's, you know, end the scene and move on, if that makes sense. I'm the exact opposite of that. <laughs> there's there's nothing but like magic behind the GM screen, and I try to make most of my decisions and choices back here so that I can focus on the story for the players and have the players be more invested. At the end of the session, then I'll be happy to have like a Q&A say, hey, I actually cut the session. Like around this point, I had to do this so that we could get to this point. But during the game, I want it on the game as as much realism as we can have in that story in that moment together. Well, you're also running, if you're running Harlem Unbound, you're running a Cthulhu game, basically, so that... Uh, I mean, for everything. Like, even at home, I have a 12-player Shadowrun game, and I do the exact same thing. Okay. That's a lot of people. Yeah. (laughs) That's a heck of a Shadowrun game. (laughs) We're just going to have a moment of silence to appreciate that. That's right. How do you find a table that can handle all those dice? Um, So in a smaller group of eight that frequently show up, we play at the table. Otherwise, you move out to the living area Uh, to play. Um, So, I mean, I am, unless it is something that is actively, I am cutting something that they are in the middle of Mm -hmm. um, doing, and I'm like, okay, we need to move on from this. Um, I tend to be more towards Chris's line. I treat it like a movie. I mean, every movie gets edited down. There's a bunch of things you don't see. And if you're really curious, you can dig into the special bonus features afterwards <laughs> if you want to. Yeah, I mean, I won't tell them if I'm I'm cutting a thing that they haven't even encountered yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just if I'm going to cut a scene short, yeah. I'm pretty honest with we need to move on. Yeah. Yeah, I think transparency about, like, how much is left in the game is sometimes yeah. a thing where just like, hey, I have... You know, we got this stuff, and we want to make sure we can wrap it up. So, like, let's... So, does that touch on what you're yeah. looking for? Or? 
It's interesting. It's an interesting question. Mm-hmm. And then you had a question over here. So, pre-generated characters. Mm-hmm. I've been struggling with finding the right balance between giving and withholding information. Oh, it's a tough one. Um, <laughs> so on one hand, you want to provide enough information that the players can have a sense of who these characters are, what motivates them, why they're in the story, but you don't want to give so much that they feel that there's no part of it that is, they can really make their own. Uh, I don't like giving illustrations because that's going to nail down... An illustration gives a lot of information very cheaply that you can show all the other players, but on the other hand, it's going to nail down you know, what the person's gender is, how to present a whole lot of things, which I prefer to let the players make their own. So, so that's the main question I'm also going to follow up afterwards. How, can, how do you strike that balance between giving enough information and not too much? If I may, this is something I've been dealing with since I started running games at cons. I like writing characters. <laughs> and it is very easy to go into that teal deer, teal deer territory where you've just written way too much and the player's not going to read it all. So I definitely try and limit myself to maximum of two paragraphs. And what I find will often help is a bullet point list of important things they know or specifically what they know about the other characters at the table. But if there's like anything relevant to the story that you're putting on the table, make sure they have like a quick glance list of, you know, what's important to the story. You know, and I also go back and forth on sometimes I will find illustrations for the characters. Sometimes I won't. Sometimes I will give them, uh, you know, I won't even give them a name or an age or a gender, but I'll give them a little bit of a background history and then see what they give me. One of the interesting examples I've had is I have an array of doctor, characters for Doctor Who, and none of them have names, none of them have ages, none of them have genders, but invariably people take the game store employee and it's a middle-aged gamer dude in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> I've had so like completely disconnected players put that character in a Hawaiian shirt and there's nothing on the sheet at all about a Hawaiian shirt. But it ends up on the character. (laughs) Conversely, the artist in that group has been different every single time. You know, so it's interesting, you know, like, so I play with that balance. But definitely keep the background as short as you can, as succinct as you can, and give a bullet list of important things that you need them to know. For the, most of my backgrounds, I usually try to focus on maybe a little bit of the background of where the character came from and what their struggles might have been and then sort of where they're going and then have a bullet point or something about the other characters that they're going to encounter. Not something overly descriptive, but you've heard X about this person. And then that lets them inform their own choices and decisions to move the character with. So not you are like this, but you come from this and like yes. you decide with that. I think that uh, treating uh, the character background like an elevator pitch in that it's that very just like Mm -hmm. super simple. Like if you give somebody a trope, what that means to each individual person is going to change, but it means something to them. And I think that anytime you can give them just enough where they hook in and they're like, oh, you know, like, yeah, I absolutely know what a hard-boiled detective is. And... uh, um, it's too fisted in the scenario. <laughs> there you go. Um, so, and one of the things I actually will often um, use character profile pictures to subvert expectations. And I, you will a lot of times if there's character, you know, if it's a team of police officers, people expect you know that there'll be a bunch of white dude police officers there. When the reality is, if you go to a police force, you're going to see people of uh, a variety, and you can push that even further. Um, and I like to make people uncomfortable sometimes, so uh, my punk rock heart still exists. And uh, that's for each individual to do. And there's a lot of games where keeping it completely open is super appropriate and actually yeah. services the game even more. But there's sometimes where sitting down and having a great idea of who it is that you're playing often serves the story as well. Yeah. So follow up on that, mm-hmm. how much of that material do you want to make transparent to the other players typically, and how much do you want to be private to a particular uh, individual player? Because that paragraph of text, even if it's quite concise, I found that it can really sort of drag things at first if everybody has to sort of read out their individual this is who I am and where I come from bit, even when it's relatively short. How do you get to the part where the players you mentioned giving everybody a little something about who, who uh, you're supposed to be. How do you, how do you introduce the characters to each other? 
usually for for me, if the characters already know each other, they there might be like a line in it that says, you've done X with so-and-so. Mm-hmm. And that lets them know that, all right, I already know you, and we have some sort of either business or personal relationship. Got it from that one line. But a lot of the other part is that for some Cthulhu stuff, someone calls them in to help them. Like, I need all of your help to do this. And they see everyone around them, and they've already gotten a little snippet of knowledge from that original bullet point. And they might have more of a relationship with a certain person. Mm-hmm. But you have one key person in common already. I have feels about this one, even though I'm moderating. <laughs> Let me say a thing. Um, so one of my favorite ways to handle that is to make everyone actually introduce their character, not by reading anything, but themselves. Because what you're doing when you do that is um, you're forcing them to have digested the information. And then as they stated in their own words, you're basically also seeing how they're going to play that character. Because they're going to pick out the things from that that they think are important. Um, and they're, they're basically telling you, like, these are the things that are going to be important as I play this character. So doing a quick round of introductions, you can do it, um, like, really quickly because people, you can be like, give me one sentence about your character, two sentences, whatever, right? And it gives everybody a feel at the table, but it does force everyone also to make decisions, initial decisions about how that character is going to play for them, which is nice, too. Like, so that paragraph's for them, but then how do they say it to everybody else? Uh-huh. I recommend experimenting. You know, do a game where you haven't assigned name, age, gender, anything like that. You just give a general idea of who the character is. Do a game where you specifically choose an illustration of who that character is to kind of force a diversity at the table in the characters. Because unfortunately, a lot of times, if you don't do that, you'll end up with a bunch of generic white characters at the table. You know, it's like, you know, experiment with it. Do it different styles to kind of see what you get. Uh, and, and figure out what you're comfortable with. And as long as you go into that particular game with a degree of confidence and understanding what you're attempting with the characters, you're fine running that game. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. So you've spoken a lot about kind of the, the techniques that improve one's con jamming. Um, mm-hmm. But kind of out of remove, you know, if you were to then be selecting, say you, you write a game that's really big and you can't run as many con sessions as there is demand and you're bringing somebody else in. One, how do you, or is it even possible to kind of test these skills, right? To, to at a glance, what would be your, your litmus test? Do I want you to run my game? And then also next to that is like, you know, system mastery versus technique mastery. You know, there has to be some familiarity with system, but kind of what's what's the balance there? If I may, if you have created a game and you are officially asking somebody to run your game at uh, an event to officially represent you, sit at their table and play their game. I know several different groups of uh, GMs, whether they run their own games or they, they run other people's games, but as a collective, they don't let people run for them until they have sat at that person's table and have an understanding of how well that person GMs. Because it is very easy to just be like, oh, yeah, yeah, come run my game. And then all of a sudden you've got six people that think your game is crap because that person couldn't run the game well. I mean, there is a certain point at which you release your game into the wild and you simply no longer have control. <laughs> That's when I'm like, if you are officially asking them to run it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I'm also a big uh, believer in running the game for them. Um, so <laughs> set expectations and what you want by saying, hey, come, let's play this game. I'll show you how I do it. And then, you know, you run, you want to run for me, you want to run for some friends, I'll watch. But set those expectations so they know what you're looking for. I have not reached that it's, point yet. <laughs> I was looking at you in case you had thoughts. For, <laughs> for me, I would want to run a game with them to see how they do it. But the system mechanics are important, but the technique for the game is more important yeah, to me. Yeah. Because systems come and go, but the style and technique is what people really remember in that vibe from the game. If Yeah, anytime you've got a situation, I will always take somebody who is a great facilitator over someone who knows the rules the best. Because that sense of safety and inclusion and collaborative storytelling, that's what people remember when they walk away. Yeah. Not how many D10s they rolled. <laughs> Unless that you know, plays into that same thing. Does that kind of answer that? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. <laughs> We have, um, let's see, we have uh, just a little under 10 minutes left. Yes. There was a lot of all over the 12-player game. 
how do you decide how few and how many players you can take? Right. <laughs> for a convention, right? Yeah, for yeah. a convention. <laughs> uh, for conventions, for me, I think my max is usually seven players. Because I want to make sure everyone everyone can get the spotlight and we can keep the plot moving. Uh, around over seven, it gets really shady. Yeah. yeah. Um, I tend to... I have this thing in my brain that says a con game is six players. Um, so I get, I, I was very weirded out with a breakout set of max of five, and I'm like, but I have six characters for both games. <laughs> you know, so it was like, you know, that's kind of my brain. But it, it also really depends on the game. If you're going to bring a game to a con, make sure you understand that game and what its limits are. There's quite a few PBTA games that really don't play well with more than five. So you want to try and keep that in mind with your own with your own skills and your own abilities and what your own comfort level is. I find that six is the sweet spot for me because it gives me enough room where I'll probably have a, a dominant player or a couple of active players and there will be enough to pull in the Shire players, but I'm not so overwhelmed that I'm forgetting them. It, it really, you know, depends on the game, depends on your own comfort level. Um, I, seven is the most that I will voluntarily run for. And that's only in that situation where I've got a full table and somebody's like, please, can I sit down and play? I'll go, okay, everyone's cool with it. But to me, you're like bursting at the seams and you need, you need something with the pacing to support that. Um, I always am going to recommend drop it down by one less than you think. It's always safer, uh, especially when you're starting out, to run with less players uh, than it is to go, well, you know, yeah, Chris can run with 12. I should be able to. <laughs> we can do this, no problem. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but Chris has a lot of experience and has already pushed the boundaries. Of I've only been things. doing it since I was 14. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, seven, six actually. years maybe. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, seven. I take it back. It was seven. I, I remember the red box set. Now. Flashbacks. But no, like I even broke Breakout Khan's rule and I ran with six players yesterday. Because I had someone who said, hey, can I play? And I was like, sure. <laughs> I wasn't going to call you out. I was just going to let it go. <laughs> it, it's, um, I, I have thoughts on this one, too. I have started limiting mine to less, specifically because I find that it takes me a lot less energy, and I'm a lot less exhausted. So if I run two four-hour games for, like, four to five people, the level of mental exhaustion that I have at the end of the day is significantly less than two four-hour games for six people. And I'm like, you know what, just, you know, for me and like where I'd like to be at the end of the day, I'm going to cap this at five. And I've started doing that. So like there are considerations just about you personally and how much energy you want to expend at the table. And when I'm running a game, I tend to be extremely, I spend a lot of energy on my games. I spend a lot of mental energy on my games, like, because they're usually very like. Senta is animated. Yes. They tend to do that, and so, like, I also run a lot of two-hour games because I'm like, okay, <laughs> we're done here. I will find that I also have a bottom limit. Mm-hmm. If I have less than four players, I feel like I, as the GM, need to be on more, and so I find those games really exhausting. Yeah. There's fewer times where I can just lean back and let the players do something amongst themselves. Make the magic. You know, they're all looking at me more. Like, I ran a two-player game once because that was all that showed up for my game, and I'm like, I don't have anything else to do this slot. Okay, let's run this game. It, one, ran a lot quicker than I expected, and two, I was absolutely exhausted when that two and a half hours of four hours was done. Yeah. So it's... <laughs> As one-third of the one-to-one game, my bottom limit's one player. After that, I'm just playing a video game. And <laughs> it is pretty intense just being one-on-one, but there's a, a level of like satisfaction and enjoyment that can't really be described. If someone is having an entire world crafted for them, tailored to them without anyone else's input. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, sure. Just follow up on that. So you show up with, say, six characters. If you know you only have three sign-ups and you're unlikely to get more, do you pull some of the characters? Or do you find... I think some of the characters are more important. It depends. Is there one of those characters that has some crucial hooks in the story? Um, I will make sure that character is one that is played. If it's a game where there's balance is an issue, I'll be, I'll be, you know, I may pull a character or two, but it really depends on what you've got at the game and, you know, what the game is going to be and what kind of balance you need both narratively and mechanically with those characters in the game. For me, I would let them play whatever they want, and I just adjust on the fly. 
one of my favorite things to do that I do rarely now is I would come to a convention and I'd have people make characters on the spot and I'd create a story as we went. And I've yet to have that go wrong. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> okay, we have one more question. We have three more minutes unless you have something no. really quick you want to say. Okay, okay uh, you talked about, a lot about um, increasing player, player agency in, in a messenger and their characters and whatnot. Um, I bought a, a con game type game off the shelf that doesn't have that. It's a movie horror where you've got 24 characters you're going to plow through. What would you? What tips do you give to make sure the indie players are messing with the game as opposed to the characters? Highlight the grizzly deaths. Yeah. <laughs> like right out of the box. Right. Maybe even throw in the 25th character that sort of like shows up to help that dies in some horrific B-movie way and that sort of gets people in that mindset to understand that's what the game is going to be about. Okay. Right. It's, um, it is at this po- that point about investing in the story yeah. instead of in the characters. So it's the same tips in a lot of ways, but you have to do them for the story yes. instead of the individual characters. It just, uh, it's a twist on it. Sorry. I jumped in. <laughs> it's really okay. hard for me not to talk about this. I have a whole podcast, you guys. <laughs> I'll be quiet. Do you have any, any, any final tips in our last two minutes before we wrap this up? Because I'm going to be respectful of everyone's time and end us right on time. Look at that. I know. So, yeah, to, to build on that, like, make it exciting. So make everybody on the edge of their seat, like, what messed up thing is about to happen to me next? Okay. Um, so you've got that, like, <gasps> okay, yeah, I'll go to the basement. <laughs> you know, like... So, you know, so play with that and create that sense of tension and drama inside the story that they're not going to have as an individual character. Uh, one last comment I'll give, not necessarily related to that question, but just in general, just do it. Don't be afraid because nine times out of ten, the players are having fun and, you know, is you think you're screwing everything up and the players are like, that was a blast. Yeah. So it's like... You know, just just do it. You will get better as you do it. And players are actually, most of the time, pretty forgiving. Mm-hmm. Any cool. last words, Chris? Uh, <laughs> improvisation is your best friend. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Thank you, guys. I think we're going to wrap it up there. Do we have any business cards or anything we should put out? This show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You, too, can become a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by The Con Organizer. Trying to get ready for the next big convention, but losing track of what you need to do next? The con organizer will keep a detailed list of all the things you're going to forget to do until the very last minute. It doesn't actually help you get ready for the con any easier, but it makes you feel like you're actually doing something. If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows. Here's one to check out. Advantage to Insight. One fan, one topic, and the best result. Advantage to Insight speaks to the fan of Dungeons and & Dragons and what interests them for you. You can find Senda at Idella Mithland on Twitter. She's a super geek and pandas talking games. You can find Camden on Twitter at Camden and at Camden.com. You can find myself, Ange, at Orikez13 on Twitter and Orikez13 on Instagram. You can also find Chris Spivey and Darker Hue Studios at Darker underscore Hue on Twitter and at his website, www.darkerhuestudios.com. I'm going to say we avoided the stew this week because, well, you know, this was recorded back in March, and, uh, you know, John wasn't there. So I think we're safe. Gnomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.